one out of every 12 Americans suffers from severe depression on a daily basis. Not only that, but in the U.S., every 12.8 minutes, someone dies from suicide. But there is hope. Studies also show that religious faith is a very important factor in preventing suicide. And that is why we're excited to have a guest with us this morning, Dr. Karen Mason. Dr. Mason is a professor of counseling and psychology at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. She's a licensed counselor and psychologist and has been working in the mental health field since 1990. She recently wrote a book called Preventing Suicide. This book is a great handbook for pastors, for counselors, and for any of us who have a friend who's thinking about ending it all. So would you please give a warm BlackRock welcome to Dr. Karen Mason. Uh, Dr. Karen Mason, uh, and uh, she has given uh, me and all of us the uh, honor of calling her Karen. Uh, and so Karen, we welcome you here to BlackRock. And just referring to your book there, uh, it's called uh, Preventing Suicide, a guide to pastors and chaplains and other professionals. But I've read this book, and it is truly just a very practical, easy-to-understand guide uh, for any Christ follower who is uh, looking to help people who are hurting in this area. Uh, just uh, with regard to this book, uh, what led you to write it? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, first, thanks so much for your warm welcome, Pastor Steve, and to Black Rock Church. Um, and, you know, I think I probably started thinking about the book when I was working managing the Office of Suicide Prevention at the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment. And during that time, we were developing materials to send out to different groups, different professionals like uh, primary care physicians and school counselors and uh, home health aides. And, um, in the national strategy, the, the suicide prevention national strategy, it actually talks about just the key role of faith leaders in faith communities. And I wasn't really sure what materials we should be sending out to faith leaders in faith communities. So when I had a chance to come teach at Gordon-Conwell, I was saying to myself, that's what I wanna try to figure out. And the book really has come out of that. It has come out of just the realization of how comprehensively faith leaders and faith communities engage this issue of suicide. So uh, churches have a big role to, uh, to play, both uh, in reaching uh, those who are part of the congregation, but also our entire community. And we at BlackRock, we wanna be part of that uh, bringing health to our community in, in this way. But in order for us to be involved in prevention and intervention and postvention uh, regard to suicide, we need to get beyond some of the myths surrounding uh, this topic. And uh, so let's go over those, uh, those myths. Maybe you can help us, Karen, with this. Uh, the first myth has to do with the fact that uh, there are those who mistakenly believe that what we're doing here is dangerous. Uh, by talking directly about suicide, the myth is that, well, now you're planting ideas in uh, people. 
And, uh, and that can also happen to us on a friend basis where we can uh, see friends who are struggling, uh, who are at risk, and we won't talk about it because we think that by talking directly, uh, we're actually triggering a potential act. And this is a myth. Could you just uh, speak to this? Mm -hmm. Well, there's uh, just a ton of research out there and really good research. If you're into randomized control trials, there's really good research to suggest that Talking about suicide does not distress people, does not plant the idea in their mind. People who uh, take surveys about suicide don't all of a sudden start thinking about suicide. And, and here's kind of the practical aspect of that. So, you know, when we were in elementary school, we all learned stop, drop, and roll for fire safety, right? But none of us, we never had a unit on what to do if you have suicidal thinking. And so a lot of times when suicidal thinking happens, uh, it's, it's very distressing. It can be puzzling. It can be scary. Uh, it can even be embarrassing. And, and we don't really know how to start that conversation with somebody else. Hey, I'm having thoughts of suicide. So if someone comes to us and, and says, hey, things have been really difficult for you. You look really down or, you know, things are really different for you right now. You know, are you having thoughts of suicide? Just asking that question can feel like a relief to the person who is thinking about suicide because all of a sudden they realize, hey, here's a person who cares, here's a person who's gonna be safe to whom I can uh, talk about these particular issues. But one of the sort of other pieces I'll just add to this is that it is important to ask the question directly, are you having thoughts of suicide or thoughts of death? Because if you were to ask the question, you know, are you planning to not be around next week? Well, you know, somebody might be planning to travel. So uh, it's better to just ask directly. Right. So I think that's a lesson to all of us that, uh, that this, the stakes are just too high here mm -hmm. uh, to, to just parse words. We need to talk directly to people if we think they're at some sort of risk and ask them directly about uh, what they're struggling with. All right, that's the first myth. Uh, the second myth has to do with uh, self-harm uh, and whether that automatically brings a person into, uh, into a suicidal uh, context. Let's say I have a friend who is cutting herself or burning uh, herself, or I have a friend who uh, uses alcohol in a life-threatening way, drinking himself to passing out on a regular basis. Uh, these are destructive acts of self-harm, but uh, they're not necessarily in the suicide category. Could you just explain right. this, uh, this differentiation of self-harm? Right, right. So uh, people who self-harm, some of those folks might overlap with the group of people who are thinking about suicide, but there are people who self-harm who aren't thinking about suicide. And so it's important to, to, to think about those two things a little bit differently. Uh, some of the people who self-harm might go on to think about suicide, but not all of those folks will. Uh, now, that doesn't mean we shouldn't take harm seriously, uh, self-harm seriously. People who self-harm can accidentally really harm themselves. Mm -hmm. And some of those people might get used to pain, might habituate themselves to pain, and then that opens the door to the possibility of a suicide attempt. So we still want to take it seriously, even though it might not uh, overlap exactly with people who are thinking about suicide. But Dr. Matthew Nock from Harvard has 
uh, in his research has found there's, there's many reasons why a person might think about self-harm. One is to just to feel something. Some people just don't feel anything inside. And so at least to feel something is better than nothing. Some people feel intense distress and to feel uh, pain and maybe the endorphin rush might be better than feeling the intense distress they're experiencing. Some people might self-harm to get people's attention around them and some people might self-harm to influence behavior like get my parents off my back. Other researchers have found that it might be the result of modeling. They see other people doing it or just an intense self-hatred. So there's, there's just a number of reasons why a person might self-harm. Okay, so this again speaks to the fact that we need to be direct and uh, that if we hear someone who is talking about uh, cutting or uh, burning or something like this, that uh, then the follow-up is not to assume, but to ask uh, some direct questions. Mm -hmm. uh, here's another myth that is very important to us uh, as a church, uh, and we're in a, a series, I Have a Friend Who, uh, which is a device related to the fact that there are some things in church that uh, believers uh, feel very reluctant to own uh, themselves, and so they'll say instead, I have this friend who, well, there's a myth out there that says that Christ followers, true Christ followers, uh, never commit suicide, never uh, consider uh, suicide or get depressed to that uh, extent. Uh, that's a myth. Could you speak to, to that mm -hmm. as you work with many believers mm -hmm. uh, who struggle in mm -hmm. this area? Ab absolutely. So even in the Bible, we have Moses and Elijah and Jonah who expressed a wish for death. Mm -hmm. uh, we have people like uh, the famous evangelist uh, Charles Haddon Spurgeon who told his congregation about his depression. And we have Edward J. Carnell, former Fuller Seminary president who wrote about his suicidal thinking. So certainly, certainly we have examples of people throughout the ages who, have who, who are, are God-fearing people, Christ followers even, who have struggled with suicidal thinking. But if we think about this theologically, it makes sense because uh, as, as Christ followers, we're both redeemed and fallen, right? We still struggle with sin and we struggle with the brokenness of this world that we were born into. And one of the pieces of that is struggling with mental health, vulnerabilities, vulnerabilities to suicide, all kinds of things like that. So in 1 John 1, 8, we read, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. We do struggle with brokenness. Uh, another reason could be that Satan seeks to destroy Christ followers. So the Puritans really emphasize this, that, that their fellow Puritans who are struggling with suicidal thinking, that was the devil who was, as we read in 1 Peter 5, was prowling around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And I think an, another reason that occurs to me that I've seen a lot working with people is just that as Christians, as Christ followers, sometimes we cope in Christian ways and sometimes we cope in non-Christian ways. So the, the sort of quintessential example for me is, the, is Job's wife, who in the middle of Job's and her suffering, she said in Job 2, curse God and die. Uh, another example would be William Cooper, who wrote many hymns 
who attempted suicide several times because he just couldn't understand that God could forgive him. So certainly as Christians, sometimes we struggle with really understanding the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I think because of that, sometimes people do struggle with suicidal thinking. And I think lastly, on this side of heaven, our bodily weaknesses sometimes do overcome our spiritual desires. And we read in Romans 8, we groan inwardly, mm -hmm. waiting for the redemption of our bodies. We're waiting to be released from this brokenness that we're all experiencing. Thank you. And I think the, the bottom line is, again, for us, BlackRock, that uh, we can be honest about our struggles and that this is a place, uh, as believers in Jesus, who is the truth, we should make this place where we worship together and we fellowship together a place where we can be truthful about all struggles, including uh, this struggle that we're discussing uh, today. All right, one more myth. Uh, and this is the myth that has to do with the face of suicide. Uh, I'm speaking for most people now, but uh, I think most people, when they think of the problem of suicide in our uh, culture, think of a young person and maybe even like a teenage girl. Uh, and obviously, teenage girls are as much at risk as anyone else, uh, but the, this stereotype, I think, also obscures uh, some, some victims that we can often uh, miss or not be looking for. Could you mm -hmm. uh, help us uh, in this area? Sure, sure. So, sorry to bring charts to church. Sure. But um, uh, if you look at, these, these are data from 2016 from the CDC, Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. And uh, the left-hand chart is non-fatal self-harm, which is basically suicide attempts. And these are attempts that have been treated at a hospital. So certainly these numbers are underrepresented. Mm -hmm. And then on the right, we have suicide deaths, uh, which again are no doubt underrepresented because they are reported by medical examiners and coroners who sometimes uh, perhaps family members encourage them not to report them as a suicide. So uh, to read the chart, though, you want to look at the bottom line there, the x-axis, which is uh, age ranges. Mm -hmm. So each little clump of bars represents a different age range. So that first age range is 10 years old to 14 years old. The next age range is 15 years old to 19 years old. So one of the things that you can see if you're looking at it, the green bar is the total numbers either suicide attempts or suicide deaths. The green bars is total numbers. The red bars are female, and the uh, blue bars are male. So one of the things you're going to notice is that certainly when it comes to suicide attempts, that's why we usually put that female face on suicide, mm -hmm. because there are more numbers. But as you were just pointing out, Pastor Steve, really it's a phenomenon that exists much more broadly than uh, in that young age range. And certainly you can see there are a few of those age ranges where in fact there are more males who have attempted suicide than females. Mm -hmm. And then when we move over to suicide deaths, one of the important things to notice is that uh, the higher numbers really are males. So males are four times more likely to die by suicide than females. And again, we don't want to, as you were pointing out, obscure the fact that females do die. Mm -hmm. 
but at the same time, uh, different ages and different uh, genders are going to be experiencing this issue of suicide differently. That's good. That's helpful. And again, I think the idea is, again, that all demographics are struggling uh, with suicide, but we want to make sure that we're not missing some people, uh, maybe even white, middle-aged uh, men who may not self-identify, may not talk about it a lot, but we need to be able to draw out uh, and be aware of that risk. Mm -hmm. Right. Ma males have a tendency to be uh, to, to seek services less, mm -hmm. uh, and, and we certainly need to encourage that. All right, so now we all have people in our lives who are uh, depressed, uh, who may even uh, say something regarding uh, self-harm, uh, and we want to be better equipped to, uh, to offer help to hurting people in our lives. Uh, so can you help us in this process of trying to assess uh, a person as whether they are low risk or if they're high risk or they're moving toward high risk? Uh, what are some things that we can uh, be watching for or asking in that regard? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, it's so important what you just said, that there is that continuum of risk. Uh, and I think it's helpful to think about markers along the way, along that continuum of risk. So the markers that I think of are um, ideation, thinking about suicide, and a question could be, you know, are you thinking about suicide? Have you thought about that? Uh, intent, do, do you intend to follow through on those thoughts? Because not all people who have those thoughts intend to follow through on them, right? But then have you thought about a plan? Have you thought about how you would follow through on those thoughts? That's another marker further along that continuum. And then do you have the means? Do you have the capability of following through on that plan a little farther along that continuum? And then last uh, would be, you know, are you imminently at risk? Are you thinking about in the very near future following through on that plan? And I think somebody over here on that continuum is that this is very serious and this person really ought to be evaluated uh, at a uh, hospital emergency room. So I think that's one of the things that's important. But there are, all along that continuum, uh, you know, medium risk, as you were pointing out, and lower risk, uh, where we still want to take that seriously, uh, but at the same time, uh, there is that continuum. And if, if you're struggling to try to figure out where on that continuum is this person. One of the resources that I think is important to point out is the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, 1-800-273-TALK. Uh, and uh, the person who's experiencing suicidal thinking can call, but a, a helper could call too, mm -hmm. or, or you could call together and try to really think about uh, where on this continuum is this person. Because that's a 24-hour... 24-7. Uh, and it's local people who answer the phone. That's and, right. Uh, and it's something that, that you can ask questions regarding someone else you love. That's and right. And get some good information. That's right. And uh, there's a network of 160 crisis centers across the United States, and so you are going to be able to find out about your local resources. Great. Okay. Uh, so we've talked about high risk. Uh, let's go back to low risk. Mm -hmm. And uh, the truth is that there are people listening to us uh, right now uh, who 
have suicidal thoughts. Mm -hmm. And uh, we would love to offer them something even right, right now in mm -hmm. terms of what is a guide that, uh, that we can give them in terms of addressing their need in this area. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, uh, one of the things that would be a, a positive piece is just thinking about uh, seeking mental health services it, it, if you are experiencing suicidal thinking. But another possibility, two possibilities I'd like to mention, one is a safety plan and one is a hope kit. So let me tell you about both of those. Um, so a safety plan is a short, easy to read plan that a person wants to have accessible to themselves when those suicidal thoughts occur. Uh, it, it's kind of like a life jacket, a life jacket that's gonna keep you afloat in the midst of that suicidal thinking and it's something that's gonna interrupt that continuum, uh, that suicide continuum. And usually safety plans include uh, calming type activities, some ways to manage the distress that you're experiencing, and also social supports that you want to reach out to. So calming activities can be, um, uh, and, and again, another reason why faith communities are so important here is, is, is your faith, right? Prayer and uh, listening to uh, music uh, that reminds you, I was thinking as I was listening to the music today, how wonderful that the music is in terms of reminding us of, of God's love for each one of us. Um, so uh, it, it can be calming kind of activities like that, taking a walk, uh, you know, petting your dog, all kinds of things like that. Uh, but then social supports, people that you can reach out to. And again, another reason why faith communities are so important. A lot of these people are going to be in your faith community, right? The pastor, the youth pastor, the Sunday school teacher, uh, uh, somebody in your small group, somebody that you can reach out to. Um, so uh, in, that would be what would go into a safety plan. And you can see one of the pieces in the safety plan is get out my hope kit. Yeah, so hope let me kit? tell you about yeah. a, a hope kit. So a hope kit is a tangible collection of reasons to live. It's things that are meaningful to me that help motivate me to choose life because a part of me wants to die, but a part of me wants to find a way through these difficult circumstances to be able to continue to live. So uh, these tangible things are gonna be different for everybody. It can be uh, photographs of something who, or, or someone who represents hope for you. But as an example, uh, one woman took T-shirts from all the people who were very meaningful to her and made a quilt. And every time she had those suicidal thoughts, she would get out that quilt and, and be reminded of her reasons to live. Right. Uh, and I should also mention some people now, there are a lot of great phone apps that... Uh, our, our virtual hope boxes. So a lot of different, it, it has to be tailor-made to the individual, but a lot of different possibilities there. I love that image of the quilt and just wrapping yourself up in yeah. uh, the love of others. And yes. certainly that's what we have as believers, as 
believers, we have resources that other people do That's not right. have and that right. we can wrap ourselves in our relationship with the one who loves us more than, uh, than we can ever even imagine. That's and right. uh, we can talk to God and uh, listen to God in prayer. Uh, we can turn to God's word in scripture and find true hope there. Uh, and then there's the fellowship that we have uh, together, and then also the opportunities to serve and to find right. meaning in, uh, in serving. And we should all be finding uh, that kind of hope as we uh, follow Jesus. Mm -hmm. But going back to truth, and uh, particularly that in Scripture, what would you put in your hope kit mm -hmm. uh, when it comes mm -hmm. to yeah, God's I Word? Lo loved you asking me that question as we were talking through the interview. So I, I have a few verses up here, some of my favorite verses, but I'm just going to talk about three and four, verse, the third one and the fourth one. Mm -hmm. uh, so the third one uh, is a verse uh, 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 from Acts 16 where Paul and Silas just got put in jail. They got just thrown in jail in Philippi. Uh, and uh, miraculously, God intervenes and a, an earthquake happens and all the prisoners are freed. And uh, uh, somehow Paul knows that the jailer is about to kill himself. He's responsible for He's responsible these, yeah, right. for these prisoners mm -hmm. and knows that he's going to be executed anyway, so why not yeah. take care of this? But in, in a, just an extraordinary act of suicide prevention, Paul calls out to the jailer and says, don't harm yourself, we're all here. And many people have said, you know, Paul is giving the jailer a reason to live. And I agree, the fact that the prisoners are still there is a reason to live. But I think it's bigger than that. I think what is extraordinary for me is that even the life of a jailer is important to save. Mm -hmm. I think that the unshakable value of every human life is what I get from that verse in Acts 16. And that is so powerful to me. Just extraordinary how Paul intervened uh, in, in, this, in the life of this, this yeah. lowly jailer who jailed him. Right. And then the, the fourth one I just want to mention, really probably one of my favorite verses in the Bible. It's Genesis uh, 50, 20. So Joseph's brothers are coming to him and saying, Joseph, you're going to have to forgive us for having done all those awful, horrible things to you. And Joseph says to them, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. And what really hits me is that the God who redeemed me through the, the death of Jesus Christ on the cross also redeems Joseph's suffering, and he redeems my suffering. And it's not to say that what happened to Joseph is right, because it was wrong what happened to Joseph. And what happens to me sometimes is wrong. God is a God of justice, and he cares about that. But what I think is so powerful is that he's, God is able to take this brokenness and redeem it into something so powerful, like the saving of a whole family's lives. Right. And, and you're referring there uh, to, to the, the truth in the Bible that, that suffering is real, that we yes. don't need to, yes. uh, to candy coat this. And we know that some of you listening now are suffering, but that there is hope uh, in Jesus in the midst of your suffering. 
and that uh, the God of the impossible uh, can give you what seems impossible in your life right now, and that's true hope. Absolutely. So we're needing to come to, uh, to the end here, uh, but maybe uh, could you give a final word just uh, to us as a whole church uh, as we seek to grow in this area and to be more aware and to talk more about it, uh, but also we know that you're also speaking to people who are helpers of those who are mm -hmm. hurting, and there are people even who have loved ones who are struggling with this uh, right now and on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. uh, what could you say in the word of an encouragement mm -hmm. uh, to, to us all here today? Yes. So I was going to say just a lot of great resources. If you want to go to the next slide here in Connecticut, lots of wonderful resources. Uh, PreventSuicideCT.org, a lot of resources in terms of materials you can order and trainings and that sort of thing, local resources as well. Uh, but in terms of helpers, I think one of the things that's so important is to get educated, you know, and that's what I'm so appreciative of what you're doing here, Pastor Steve. I just think it's so important to get educated about some of these issues so that you can uh, sort of negotiate some of the challenges of mental health conditions and treatments. Treatments are available. Treatments are good. But how do you negotiate this? How do you coordinate care well? Um, but one of the things I would say to uh, helpers and caregivers is that they are not exempt from the fourth commandment. God rested when he finished his work. They need to find ways to balance out the fact that they are engaging human suffering in very profound ways. So helpers also need to find ways to take care of themselves in order to avoid burnout. And that's another thing that's protective, I think, about a faith community is that we as a church need to come around these helpers who are frontline caregivers and give them the ministry of presence and the ministry of helps. That's excellent. Thank you. I so appreciate uh, you being here to help us here at BlackRock. I know you do too. Would you just uh, uh, join me in thanking uh, Karen Mason? Thank you so thank much. Thank you. Yeah. We want to thank you for watching and listening to our sermons online. And we hope that uh, you will be inspired to live more like Jesus through these. Please check out blackrock.org for more information about our church. Know that you can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. And also uh, know that you can give uh, to BlackRock and to our ministry through PushPay, through our mobile app, and on our website. Your uh, donations and your support of our ministry allows us to have uh, these videos online and for us to impact our community.